following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 13, 24 to 31. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. This is the word of the Lord. If you're a parent, you... You probably know this, but, but maybe one of the hardest parts of being a parent is holding back laughter when you know you shouldn't laugh. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it, this, this has happened a couple of times in, in recent months, but I, I've got a five-year-old son who was sitting up here with me, and he is just a, a ball of energy, but his, his emotional maturity as a five-year-old is very obvious, where he goes from being a ball of joy one moment and a flip gets switched and it's like the world's crumbling. And there have been multiple occasions at bedtime where you just know this five-year-old, he's exhausted, uh, the days put him through the ringer, and he just comes to the end of himself and you hear him like bewail, like almost to the same extent as Job. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Bible, Job loses everything in his life, his kids, his livelihood, his home, his health, and it seems like sometimes my son can boil with Joel, Joe, Job. Um, and so we'll be sitting there right before bed, and he just is wailing. Life is just too hard. Literally, words that come out of his mouth. Life is just too hard. And, and that's one of those moments where as a dad, you want to laugh because it's funny. Because the reality is he's, he's got no idea. Right? And so it's like in that, in a truthful response to him is, little guy, you got no idea how hard it can be. Now, if you've been breathing for a while, you've probably realized this truth, that life actually is hard. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, and you find that you have excluded life itself. Pain and suffering are so intertwined with all of life that if you get rid of pain, you find you get rid of life. And now there are some seasons where this pain, this suffering is grueling. You, you get put through the ringer. You're facing a myriad of, of difficulties and challenges, and there comes in very, uh, varying forms and degrees. It could be health issues. You've got problems at home with marriage or kids or relationships. You're struggling. 
You find yourself in, in just like a grueling season at work, long hours, or putting up with a boss who you really don't like working for. You feel the stress of being an adult, which my five-year-old doesn't know yet. The emotional pains and tolls that gets placed on us, and it can go on and on and on. And the reality is that not everyone faces the same type of suffering. Not everybody faces the same intensity of suffering, but the reality is we all suffer. Now, one of the main things that most major religions try to deal with is the problem or the issue of suffering. Every religion has some sort of something to say about suffering, either the causes of it, an explanation, or the remedy, and some are more thoughtful than others, but, but what you see is that some of these, even the off-brands of Christianity, have been tempted or, or stepped into this false narrative of how you can escape suffering in this life. Now, this is where some wisdom from one of the, the, the classics comes in, Uh, very helpful, very enlightening. It's from the classic, The Princess Bride. He says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. See, Orthodox Christianity isn't selling anything. Orthodox Christianity acknowledges the reality of pain and suffering. In fact, the book of Job is, is 40 chapters devoted to this reality. The Bible doesn't downplay the pain and the agony that we encounter in this life. You can flip through the Psalms and you can read all about the lamenting, in fact, the book of Lamentations. And a lot of the times in the Psalms, we we see how this gets resolved, but there are some Psalms where the, the pain is so intense where it just sort of gets, it doesn't, it just sits there, like Psalm 88. There's there's no resolve in a psalm like that. Christianity validates those who are suffering by saying it's real, it's hard, and it hurts. Christianity offers uh, a bit of explanation as far as the root cause or the origin of suffering. It traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Before sin had entered into the world, there wasn't such thing as suffering. And from sin comes all suffering. And Christianity offers a real comfort when we're facing the most crippling forms of suffering. See, Orthodox Christianity has a lot to say about suffering, but suffering will make zero sense to us until we understand the role that suffering had in Jesus' life. Because Christianity doesn't deal with suffering and sort of ideas. Like, Like Christianity sort of debunks the idea of karma It's not rooted in these four noble truths. Christianity deals with suffering in a person. As we've been preaching through the Apostles' Creed over the last few weeks, we come to a stanza that puts Jesus' suffering front and center. And as we understand Jesus' suffering, what happens is we can begin to make sense of our own suffering. It's not that we get the, the answers to our why questions, like why do we suffer, although there are some answers. But when we see Jesus is suffering, the for what question gets answered. For what am I suffering? 
Jesus' sufferings informs us, informs our sufferings, and it transforms our sufferings. And today I wanna show you what it means when we say I believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And I wanna show you how his suffering reinforms our suffering as a means to transform us. So if you wanna join me in Acts 13, Acts 13 is one of the many places in scripture that shows the reality of Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate. They was crucified, they just died, that he was buried. And so if you look right, at, right in the middle of what was read this morning in verse 28, it says, and though they found him, speaking of the religious leaders and Pilate, not guilt, uh, they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now growing up, I always wondered why why does the Apostles' Creed mention Pontius Pilate? Like, why, why do we specifically identify this guy that we probably wouldn't even have heard of unless it was for this specific instance? You know, some, some people in Illinois don't even know our own governor. Uh, the, why would we need to know a governor uh, who, who is in Judea between 26 to 35 AD? Like, what, what's the point of this? And, and here's why. Just, just as a helpful uh, point of reference, it's to show us that Christianity is rooted in facts. It's rooted in history. Christianity is not about emotion or not rooted in wishful thinking or mythology. It is rooted in a man named Jesus Christ who was born from Nazareth, who was killed in Jerusalem by Pontius Pilate within that 10-year window. Christianity is historical. And when you look at the Apostles' Creed, when we stand back and look at the Apostles' Creed, it seems like it only deals with the bookends of Jesus' life. Last week, we saw how he entered the world. Now we're talking about his exit, but, but what about the middle pieces of Jesus' life? Right? Where are his teachings that the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John lay out, his miracles, his works? Where is the substance of his life? It seems like the Apostles' Creed has nothing to say about it, but actually it does. The, the, the Apostles' Creed has one thing to identify the life of Jesus Christ, and it is that he suffered. And we probably don't realize that Jesus' suffering wasn't just contained to the last few days of his life. Like, I, I think that's the default when we talk about, even the way that the phrase is lined up, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. But John Calvin in his uh, catechism, he says, he has this question, what understandest thou by the littlest word suffered? That's some pretty good old English for you. That he all of the time in all of his life on earth, but especially at the end thereof, had borne in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of the whole world. See, what Calvin is trying to point out is that suffering was the constant thread throughout the entirety of Jesus' life from birth all the way to his brutal murder. And let me just help you. I, I wanna do a quick flyover of this because I, I, 
I think it helps us in the midst of suffering to know that Jesus himself suffered even to a greater extent that we did, not just in his crucifixion, but throughout his whole life. Let's go through this. First, for starters, Jesus was born in distress. You know how nowadays doctors tell uh, pregnant women who are towards the, the tail end of their term, you know, try to limit travel, stay within an hour, hour and a half radius of the local hospitals? Well, Mary and Joseph, like right before she was about to give birth, they went on a 90-mile trek, not by car, but on the back of a donkey and by foot. They, they made a grueling trek to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, you'd hope that, you know, for a pregnant woman, you'd find a, a hospital, some sort of place, a nice, clean, sanitary room to go through the trauma of giving birth, but Mary finds none of that. She gave birth in an unsterile barn. Now, as a new mom, some of you have been there and you can recall this, the anxiety and the fear and all of these things that go into having, bringing a new child into the, into the world, it intensifies when you're in a stable and you have to worry about, is this cow going to eat my baby? Right? There, there's a lot of tension here. And, and so that's just the beginning of it. After Jesus is born, right away he gets swept up into, uh, he becomes a refugee. He goes into exile with his parents in Egypt. He is under threat because King Herod hears about this newborn king and he goes out and he kills all of the newborn babies. So right away, boom. Jesus is born in distress. Now he gets home, and what you have to realize in in the Near East here is they lived in an honor-shame culture. For Mary to be pregnant out of wedlock would have had some lingering implications. So Jesus would have gotten home and be treated like a bastard child. That he would have been ostracized because he wasn't a product of marital wedlock. He was born outside of that. And it intensified because eventually he was chased out of his hometown. People looked at him and just despised him and they wanted him gone. Now at home, in his private life, it it wasn't any easier. We talked last week, Jesus is fully God, fully man, that he, he was perfect in every way. And here, the God of glory empties himself to become anonymous to be obscure, to be underappreciated. In fact, to get an idea of it, Jesus had from eternity past been with the, his perfect father in heaven who enjoyed that, that perfect union, that deep communion with his father. He left that to go and live with a bunch of sinners. That, that Jesus spent 30 years of his life interacting with his mom and dad who were sinners, who had sinned against him. Think about that, like, as the perfect child, knowing that if your mom or dad were ever to come at you and accuse you of doing something wrong, you could say, I know for a fact I didn't do it, but you still had to absorb that. Or when his siblings would antagonize him. John chapter 7 says that Jesus' brothers, they wrote him off. They didn't want anything to do with him. They, they dismissed him and thought he was crazy. 
And then Jesus goes and he begins his public ministry. And you can really follow how throughout the whole entire ministry, just suffering after suffering, he gets baptized and it's this really glorious moment and right away he's swept up by the spirit and taken out to the wilderness to, to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's agonizing in a physical sense and then to add misery to it, Satan shows up and is trying to derail his mission. He's under spiritual attack being tempted. And as Jesus makes his way out of that unscathed, as soon as he gets a following, as soon as he starts proclaiming this message of the kingdom of God, he has people who start hating him. In fact, if you look at Mark's gospel, it's by chapter three where there are people who hate Jesus so passionately that they want to put him out of his misery, that they want to kill him. And you follow Jesus' life and his ministry, he, he loses a close friend. He, one of the shortest uh, verse of the Bible is that Jesus wept. Jesus, wherever he turns, encounters disease and brokenness and the injustice of sin. He sees sees people uh, marginalized. And though everything Jesus did in his entire life, like Jesus all the time did did what was good, right, and perfect, there, there was never a moment where Jesus was unloving. He was chased out of town. People, people rejected him. You know, in the Gospels, we see some people embracing his teaching and really gravitating toward him, but we see just as many people pushing away and saying, yeah, nah, I'm not interested. And so Jesus made his way through his ministry as this poor, homeless, single, not that uh, being single has its own, there, there's something that goes with it that's challenging, And then on top of that, Jesus had boneheads for friends. And you would think that as the son of God, right, that you would have a pretty good ministry. You think that as the son of God, you start preaching and then just like everybody in the city comes and shows up and loves what you gotta say. But Jesus was rejected, he was ridiculed, he was ignored. In the midst of carrying a a heavy pastoral burden and caring for the people who cared little about him and loving messy people, Jesus suffered under that weight. And you can bet that every turn he took, he was facing some sort of spiritual attack. Now just imagine this this kind of suffering on an endless loop for 33 years. And we're finally, just now, getting to the suffering that is associated when we say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. See, with that, Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. With his help, the religious leaders of that day made Jesus out to be state enemy number one. They plotted his murder, they rigged a trial, and Jesus was condemned to death through an unfair legal system. And he did this all alone, with nobody there, because all of his closest friends, not just the one who betrayed him, but all of his closest friends abandoned him. And this is where the suffering that Jesus endured becomes physical, it becomes violent. In fact, it's perhaps one of the most vile um, t- 
types of suffering that you might take because he wasn't just condemned to die, but he was condemned to die by crucifixion. The act of crucifixion was so severe, so punishing that that the word excruciating was invented because of this. The crucifixion was the most violent, dehumanizing way to die. It, It prolonged physical agony and ensured a certain death. And it wasn't just a matter of getting hung up on the cross. In fact, like being hung up on the cross might be the easiest part of the whole process of the crucifixion. There were phases that happened to it. First phase of crucifixion was this trial, and from the trial you'd be taken, you'd be stripped naked, you'd be bent over a, a, a post, and you'd be lashed with a whip that had shards of glass and bone attached to the end of it. And with every whiplash, it would rip into the flesh and pull it off. With every lash of the whip, it'd just go one layer deeper into the point it was digging into the muscle. Leave your body exposed. If it was raining out, you'd have to deal with water, dirt, getting kicked into your open wounds. You'd experience a lot of blood loss. Muscle fatigue. In fact, it it wasn't uncommon for people who were sentenced to crucifixion to not make it out of the first phase of it. It's so intense. There have been, there have been, since crucifixion, there have been medical journals that have gone through and sort of documented the agonizing pain of what the crucifixion entailed, and then it moves into this next phase where The person sentenced to death would have to exert more energy, the little energy that they had left, to carry their own murder device. Now Christians, it's so weird. I mean, we've got a cross hanging up there. And in some ways, we celebrate a murder device. It's so weird. It is, like, it would be the equivalent today of like having an electric chair and wearing an electric chair around our, our our, our neck, it's so offensive, what is this? It's a murder device. And Jesus, or th- th- those who were being crucified would be laid down on this murder device, they would be nailed to it through their wrists, through their feet, and then finally they would be stood up to be vertical. Now if you made it this far, through the crucifixion process, you, you probably wouldn't necessarily bleed out and die. It, it wasn't the wounds necessarily that would kill you. It was the fact that gravity was pulling you down and choking you out, making it perhaps one of the most miserable ways to die of asphyxiation. Your lungs would fill up with blood. They'd collapse and in some cases, in fact, the way that Jesus was crucified with the two thieves next to him, they had to break their legs in order to speed up the process of their death because it was so long and agonizing. And, and there are no like legit stats, stats that we can go back to and, and verify this with, but I feel pretty confident in saying that crucifixion had a 100% success rate. Did anyone who was sentenced to be crucified would, in fact, die 
so we see at the cross there's this physical pain, physical suffering that Jesus took on himself. But honestly, that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was that this was meant to grade a person below the status of being a human. This didn't happen in a back alley. This didn't happen in some sort of secret closet locked away. This was a public skeptical. That as Jesus was enduring all of the misery, all of the pain, he was taunted, he was mocked, he was spit on, he was ridiculed. Fleming Rutledge wrote just an incredible book about the crucifixion, and she says that Jesus was killed by the best people, and everybody saw it. See, this was not just an attempt to snuff out that one person, but an attempt to snuff out what that person stood for. She says, the meaning of the cross lies not only in physical suffering, but especially in rejection and shame. The cross was to make you know that nobody wanted you. Now in this process, when Jesus is being crucified, we see a lot of people rejecting his best friends or turned on him, have turned their back on him. You see the masses just watching Nobody's advocating for him. But the worst part was when Jesus was actually rejected by God. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And unless you understand how far back this bond that Jesus had with his heavenly father goes, the fact that the the relationship that Jesus had with his heavenly father goes all the way back into eternity past. And in that moment, it's broken. Jesus is essentially kicked out of the Trinity. And in that moment, Jesus is really alone. He died naked, bloody, and alone. He was crushed in body and in soul, and you can go and look at him, and he is the most ruined man in history. Jesus experienced every pain imaginable to the most extreme degree, to the point where Jesus isn't just a guy who suffered. Jesus is the personification of suffering. I realize this is really heavy. Feels like the air got sucked out of this room. And it's probably rightly so. Because when you look at Jesus and you know the fact that he was a sinless man, that he did nothing but love people his whole entire life, you can't help but wonder, like, where was God through all of this? Good Friday doesn't make a lot of sense. The fact that darkness comes over the world, it says like the sun got blotted out. Where is God in this? And listen, and I know, you know this, that if you've gone through a season of suffering, you can't help but ask yourself, where is God? You, You can't help but ask that question yourself. 
because it feels like things are so dark and so painful. We ask, why isn't God stopping this? How how can something so bad happen? If God is there, how can he let this happen to me? I think one of the most common pushbacks of that, that Christians get is like, if, if, if God is the God of love, why would he let suffering happen? And honestly, like really, there's probably no real answer that really satisfies that question to the full extent. And that, I think that's something that we won't know for sure until we reach the new heavens, new earth, if God chooses to disclose that to us. But I can tell you why not, or why it's not that we suffer. It's not that God doesn't care about us. See, if God didn't care about us, he would have just let us suffer and go on our own path. He would have tucked himself away in a corner in heaven and just sort of let things unravel on their own. But God didn't do that. God stepped into suffering himself. And so we know it's not because God doesn't love us. Oftentimes, When God seems most silent are the times when he is most active. I'm not gonna lie. I was sitting up here this morning and there's some Sundays I come up here and I'm just like, God, don't let me go up there alone. It's always bad. It doesn't go good for me. It doesn't go good for you. Nobody likes it. And I feel like this, this morning the Lord is like, I'm gonna let you feel like you're alone but I'm not, that I'm not alone. See, it's in the times where God seems most silent, where he's most active, and that's true because on Good Friday, when it seems like God had disappeared, God was doing something that not even the angels could have dreamt of. Now, to make sense of this, in, here in our passage of Acts uh, 13, it talks about um, those who were Jew, uh, dr- rulers in Jerusalem because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets which were read every Sabbath. See, God is fulfilling his promises here on Good Friday. One of those that we most commonly go to is the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, 53. God is talking about a servant one of his servants that God would exalt, that would raise up to the high places, that by this servant he would restore Israel to all of its glory. Now with this, and if you go throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of this, this, uh, this common idea that's repeated over and over that God would restore Israel and it would not just be like a, a sense of political restoration, but it would be a total, complete restoration. Like, like the idea of going back to the Garden of Eden before sin and suffering enter this world. And so he says that I'm sending this servant who's gonna come and he's gonna be exalted and restore Israel. But then in the next chapter of Isaiah in 53, it, it turns the corner where this, this servant, we're told, is a suffering servant. Isaiah says that, that this servant is gonna be despised, rejected, he's gonna be crushed, he's gonna be pierced, that that we're gonna look at him and say, this is a man of sorrows. And what God is doing here is disclosed to us in Isaiah 53, because if you know this about Isaiah 53, you can't help but look and say, oh yeah, that's obviously Jesus. 
Isaiah 53 verse 10 tells us what was going on here. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. When Jesus is on the cross, he's making an offering for guilt, and it's not his own guilt. Jesus was guiltless. He was sinless. He's not going because of his guilt. He's going to the cross for ours. Now, do you see how this idea that if Jesus was a sinless man and he took the most brutal, agonizing death possible and just lived a life of suffering, how this completely disrupts the idea of karma? Because if karma is true, Jesus should be paraded around. He should be celebrated. He should be getting the crown placed upon his head, exalted to the high places. And Jesus is paraded around, but with a crown of thorns and humiliation. See, the cross not only shows the mercy of God that he went to the cross in our place to pay for our guilt of sin, But the cross also shows us how wicked humanity has become. We are so sinful, we are so twisted that we are capable of not just killing but brutally killing the innocent God-man who walked the face of this earth. That's how twisted and debased sin has made us and, and it's this picture of our sinfulness that shows us how badly deserving we are of this cross ourselves. But God not only shows his goodness to us by giving us good gifts, God shows his goodness to us by keeping things from us. You see, Jesus takes the fall that we deserve to take. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God that our sin has earned us. In Isaiah 53, when you go back and and you see Jesus and you reinterpret this passage through the, the crucifixion, through the lens of the gospel, what we see is something glorious. Isaiah 53, verses three through six says, he, and he's talking about Jesus, was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all. What we see here, and if you keep going through this, because really Isaiah 53 is just gospel gold when you go back and you look at it through the lens of Jesus. He's saying that by the wounds of of Jesus, we are healed. That by the suffering of Jesus, 
we can now find peace. He has reconciled us to God. No longer is the wrath of God against us, but the love of God is for us. And what this shows us, because Jesus emptied himself to the point of death, Jesus isn't just a victim. I think it'd be really easy, there's an old Saturday Night Live skit where it's like a speed reader who flips through the book of the Bible and closes it and goes, poor Jesus. It'd be really easy to look at Jesus and say, man, he just had a tough hand dealt to him. He was a victim. But what we see here in Jesus going to the point of death, Jesus isn't a victim. He becomes the victor. That by his death, he becomes exalted. And not just Jesus exalted. This is good news for us because because Jesus is exalted to high place. We are exalted with him. That Romans 8 tells us we are more than conquerors in Christ. Now some of our suffering in life is because we've done stupid stuff and we're just getting some of the consequences from that. And there's some of our suffering in life that that we didn't do anything to deserve, that we are actually victims. And we can, if we don't have the gospel, we can live in a victim identity for our entire lives. We can be driven by it. That can be our our source of, basically like an umbrella that we hide under. But the gospel flips the script on that and tells us we're no longer victims, we are conquerors with Christ. Seeing what Jesus has suffered will not make our suffering any less painful. Christian, if you're suffering right now, you don't need to feel guilty about it. You don't need to pretend like it doesn't exist. You're still going to experience pain. And in that moment, we we have a promise that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. A bruised reed he will not break. It's still going to hurt, but when we see what Jesus suffered, his suffering reframes our suffering. It gives us a new perspective on our own suffering. Now, the first one is that, that the reality is that what we suffer now we deserve far worse. Like, right, the cross should have been for us. But we don't have to endure that. Jesus did that suffering for us. But the second thing that we realize is that suffering has a redemptive purpose. Without the gospel, we look at suffering and it feels like a weapon used against us. But suffering in the hand of God is a tool that is made for us. Now this is true in an ultimate sense. Because of of Jesus' victory, one day suffering will be completely abolished from this earth. In the new heavens, new earth, every tear is wiped away. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sadness or sorrow or grief. Everything sad will come untrue, as Tolkien says. And it's being anchored in this future reality, not a future pipe dream, but a future reality of of the book of Revelation, chapters 19, 20, 21, that allows us to endure what we might suffer today. In fact, in in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, I forget which Corinthians is, Paul talks about experiencing this light and momentary affliction 
And he's not belittling suffering and saying, oh, it's no big deal, like, you know, just let it roll off your back. No, 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 he understands the gravity of suffering, but in comparison to the glory that is to come, it doesn't even compare. And when we see that our future is incredibly bright in the gospel, when we see that one day suffering is gonna be wiped away, that allows us to engage in suffering in a new way. This allows us to live what theologians call the cruciform life. This is a life that is shaped by the crucifixion. It's, it's to follow Jesus' pattern that the way to be exalted is to be humbled. This is the pattern of the Christian life. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when Christ calls a man to himself, it is a call, it's a bidding to come and die. It's not because we are masochists. It's not because we just love to suffer and get off on it. It's because the only way to glory is through trial. The only way to to be exalted is to go through suffering. First Peter, and you would be surprised at how much the New Testament talks about suffering in a way that's so empowering when you understand the gospel. First Peter 4, 13 says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, if you wanna rejoice in the glory that's to come, that there is a, a rejoicing and embracing of the suffering that we will face in this life. And to the degree that you understand the gospel, to the degree that you understand that Christ suffered in your place and what his suffering means, it will affect how you respond to and view your suffering in your own life. See, this is how Christians can befriend suffering and not reject it. Now, I'm not saying that we go and we try to make ourselves suffer any more than it's necessary. That's not at all. Jesus says that in this world you will have troubles. You will be rejected. You will be ostracized on account of being a Christian. We're not going out looking for extra trouble. But when it comes, the gospel allows you to befriend it because you know in the gospel that your suffering isn't punishment. Your suffering isn't because God is mad at you and he's taking it out on you. The cross shows us that that God's wrath has been fully poured out on Christ. So it does not need to be poured out on us. The gospel shows us that God has so powerful that he can do great things in the midst of bad circumstances. Though we face pain, though we suffer in this life, we do not become despondent. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12 says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Here's the good news, friends. Though death is at work in us, suffering bears down on us. The power of God is so strong that he breathes life back into our lungs. If you go back to Acts, and didn't even get to touch it because we're gonna spend a lot of time on it next week. The reality is here that, that though Jesus be dead, God raised him from the dead. The power of God is made manifest in the resurrection. And as we sang about, because Jesus has been resurrected, we are being resurrected. Our suffering isn't wasted. In our weakness, God's power is made strong. So as Christians, we don't need to balk. We don't need to walk away. We don't need to hide from suffering. God is in it. God is near to us. God is for us. And we know this because of the cross. As we come to the Lord's table today, we see this. We see it's a physical, it's a physical reminder of God's love for us that he did not spare his son, but he gave him up even to the point of death that Jesus would die to bear the wrath of God that we may be forgiven. And so this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, that Jesus suffered in our place so that we could have his life. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus We did not deserve it. This is merely grace to us. And we thank you that by faith, for those of us who who look and see Jesus' death, we can see that it was done in our place so that we don't have to endure that kind of suffering. And though we will still suffer in this life, that our suffering has been flipped on its head. There's no longer a weapon against us. There's a tool to build us up, to strengthen us, in your grace, and we pray, God, that you would do this now. I don't know who's in this room this morning who just feels like they're in a rut, who feels like from every angle, things are coming down, but God, I pray that you would meet them here this morning. And God, would you give our, ch- our church the strength, the power to give ourselves to the cruciform life, to know that the way, the way up is down. Those who are humbled will be exalted. God, and we come in humility now to the Lord's Supper to take and eat, to taste your goodness to us, to remember your grace that was poured out. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.